Hello everyone and welcome back to our lecture for this week on Adrian Rich's article Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Experience. Sorry, this lecture is a little late this week. I've just been feeling um, under the weather. So thank you so much for your patience and I hope, I hope you all are doing all right too. We're coming up to one year um, of COVID lockdown and, and it's weird. Um, we've lost a lot of our supports or, I mean, things that make us feel good and bring us joy. And so I hope everyone's doing all right. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So that's first thing I wanted to say. And then I also wanted to say, um, about this article, compulsory heterosexuality, that obviously, um, something that Adrian Rich doesn't talk about, but which is true about compulsory heterosexuality is, it's also, it also relies on an idea of um, men being innately heterosexual. And I just want to point out um, two things that I think are related to compulsory heterosexuality that Rich doesn't mention, but I think are um, maybe interesting to keep, or I don't know, I thought they were interesting. So one was about how stereotypes for queer men are feminine and stereotypes for queer women are masculine and just thinking about that through this lens of compulsory heterosexuality right where it seems like our stereotypes for lesbians or um, for gay men are kind of about or, or might be explained by recreating compulsory heterosexual heterosexuality again right you have oh well if you're attracted to to women then you must be masculine right still about this about this this pairing of masculine and feminine and then you have gay men the stereotype for gay men is more more feminine men so here you have people who are who are sexually attracted to men and what do they have to embody femininity so i mean is that compulsory heterosexuality playing out again maybe that's one way to explain these things and then the other myth that i wanted to raise and just well i'll i think i bring it up again in the in the lecture it's definitely in my notes later is about but i sometimes forget to to say those things but is about this narrative this cultural myth in western society about men and women not being able to be friends right that it's oh it's always got to be sexual but there's none of that narrative around um about uh, around same-sex pairing right nobody thinks that men can't just can't be friends in fact the myth is like is the opposite that there's you know that there's it's deviant if there's eroticism between men that's homophobia but um this this myth that men and women can't be friends seems also to be a byproduct of this compulsory heterosexuality maybe that if men and women have any kind of relationship it has to be an erotic a sex a sexual relationship i guess erotic's not the right word because well the um that's a word that has been taken to mean much broader things but that men if men and women have a meaningful relationship it can't just be platonic it has to be um it has to be sexual which seems to me like 
as part of this compulsory heterosexuality um, narrative. And then one thing, one more thing I want to say before we get started is um, one thing that Adrian Rich talks about is the erasure of the history of lesbian community. So I just want to give a little shout out to a Toronto queer women's community, the Women's Hockey Club of Toronto, which has been around for over 30 years. And it's an adult recreational ice hockey league for women, trans, non-binary folk who are queer um, or queer allies. And um, I'll just read a little bit from their website. So the league was first created in 1993 to offer safe space for gay and gay positive women to play hockey. And since then, it's grown to have 12 teams with over 15 players on each team. And it's believed to be the only queer women's hockey league in Canada and one of the largest in North America. And it's a, um, and I've played hockey with the, with that league for, this would be my sixth year, I think, if it was happening. And it's just such a cool community. It's all ages. It's all skill levels. If anyone out there is um, interested in ice hockey or plays ice hockey and is a queer woman or non, non-binary or just a queer ally, I'd encourage you to look into it. It's a really... It's a really, really wonderful community. Okay, so let's get started. So first, a little biography about Adrienne Rich. During her life, uh, poet and essayist Adrienne Rich was one of America's foremost public intellectuals. She was widely read and highly influential, and her career spanned seven decades and hewed closely to the story of post-war American poetry itself. Her earliest collection, including A Change of World, which won the prestigious Yale Younger Poets Award, was formally exact and decorous while her work of the 1960s and 70s became increasingly radical in both its free verse form and feminist and political content. Her metamorphosis through her life was summed up by Carol Musk Dukes in the New York Times Book Review, where she wrote, polite copyist of Yeats and Auden, wife and mother, she has progressed in life and in her poems from young widow and disenchanted formalist to spiritual and rhetorical convalescent to feminist leader and doyenne of a newly defined female literature. Her poetry of the 1970s and 80s served as central texts for the second wave feminist movement. When she died in 2012, she was one of the most respected American poets. Beginning with Snapshots of a Daughter-in-Law, Poems 1954 to 1962, Rich's work has explored issues of identity, sexuality, and politics. Her formerly ambitious poetics have reflected her continued search for social justice, her role in the anti-war movement, and her radical feminism. Using the cadences of everyday speech, enjambment, and irregular line and stanza lengths, Rich's open forms have sought to include ostensibly non-poetic language into poetry. In addition to the National Book Award, Rich has received many awards and commendations for her work, including the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, the Lannan Lifetime Achievement Award, the Bollingen Prize, the Academy of American Poets Fellowship, and a MacArthur Genius Award. 
She made headlines in 1997 when she refused the National Medal of Arts for political reasons, saying, I could not accept such an award from President Clinton or this White House because the very meaning of art as I understand it is incompatible with the cynical politics of this administration. Rich was born in 1929 in Baltimore, Maryland. Her father was a renowned pathologist and professor at John Hopkins, and her mother was a former concert pianist. Rich's upbringing was dominated by the intellectual ambitions her father had for her, and Rich excelled at academics, earning her degree from Radcliffe University. In 1953, she married Alfred Conrad, an economics professor at Harvard, and they had three children. But their relationship began to fray in the 1960s as Rich became more politically aware. She later said that the experience of motherhood was eventually to radicalize me. Beginning in the 1960s and, and through the 1970s, Rich's work began to show signs of that radicalization. She moved her family to New York in 1966, and her poetry from this period included Necessities of Life, Leaflets, and The Will to Change, all of which featured looser lines and radical political content. Rich's husband died in 1970, and six years later, Rich moved in with her long-term partner, Michelle Cliff. That same year, she published her controversial, influential collection of essays, of woman born, motherhood as institution and experience. The volume following on the heels of her masterpiece, Diving into the Wreck, ensured Rich's place in the feminist pantheon. Through over 60 years of public introspection and examination of society and self, Adrienne Rich has chronicled her journey in poetry and prose. I began as an American optimist, she said once, albeit a critical one formed by our racial leg legacy and by the Vietnam War. I became an American skeptic, not as to the long search for justice and dignity, which is part of all human history, but in the light of my nation's leading role in demoralizing and destabilizing that search here at home and around the world. Perhaps just such a passionate skepticism Neither cynical nor nihilistic is the ground for continuing. And that biography was brought to you by thepoetryfoundation.org. And before we begin, I think it is makes sense to read an Adrienne Rich poem. So this is a poem called Diving into the Wreck. First, having read the book of myths and loaded the camera, and checked the edge of the knife blade, I put on the body armor of black rubber, the absurd flippers, the grave and awkward mask. I am having to do this, not like Cousteau with his assiduous team aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here alone. There is a ladder. The ladder is always there, hanging innocently, close to the side of the schooner, we know what it is for, we who have used it. Otherwise, it is a piece of maritime floss, some sundry equipment. I go down, rung after rung and still. The oxygen immerses me, the blue light, the clear atoms of our human air. I go down, my flippers cripple me. I crawl like an insect down the ladder and there is no one to tell me where the ocean will begin. First the air is blue and then 
it is bluer and then green and then black i am blacking out and yet my mask is powerful it pumps my blood with power the sea is another story the sea is not a question of power i have to learn alone to turn my body without force in the deep element and now it is easy to forget what i came for among so many who have always lived here swaying their crenellated fans between the reefs and besides you breathe differently down here i came to explore the wreck the words are purposes the words are maps i came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail i stroke the beam of my lamp slowly along the flank of something more permanent than fish or weed the thing i came for the wreck and not the story of the wreck the thing itself and not the myth the drowned face always staring toward the sun the evidence of damage worn by salt and sway into this threadbare beauty the ribs of the disaster curving their assertion among the tentative haunters this is the place and i am here the mermaid whose dark hair streams black the merman in his armored body we circle silently about the wreck we dive into the hold i am she i am he whose drowned face sleeps with open eyes whose breasts still bear the stress whose silver copper vermeil cargo lies obscurely inside barrels half wedged and left to rot we are the half destroyed instruments that once held to a course the water-eaten log the fouled compass we are i am you are by cowardice or courage the one who find our way back to this scene carrying a knife a camera a book of myths in which our names do not appear so that was um diving into the wreck by adrian rich from her collection of poetry is diving into the wreck poems 1971 to 1972. Okay, so let's get started. So Adrienne Rich begins this article, Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Experience, by talking about the bias of compulsory heterosexuality through which lesbian experience is perceived on a scale ranging from deviant to abhorrent or simply rendered invisible. So here in my notes, I'd listed a few examples Um, One is about just our experience of dating, you know, so imagine you're at a bar. Um, It's it's our it's our default assumption that everyone is heterosexual. You never think about it. If you're queer and you've been to a bar, you know that that's you can't assume those things. There's I mean, less danger now, maybe in a big city like Toronto, but assuming that someone else is gay and hitting on them or asking them out or flirting could be really dangerous in lots of places but at the very least it's not the assumption 
the assumption is everybody's straight and there's no I mean I think that's I would be very surprised if that's not if both straight people and queer people don't feel that way and then another example that came to mind was last uh, my partner and I do the crossword every week and last week one of the clues was about was the clue was the long-term friend of Alice B and when I googled it because I didn't know who Alice B was the answer was was her life partner was a woman that she spent 40 years living with as partners but the way that it was what she was called was her friend which would just never happen if they were opposite sex pairs can you imagine not like they would never call um alice b's husband if she had one her long-term friend why wasn't the clue alice b's a wife Okay, so those are just some of, some of the things that I was thinking about. So Adrian Rich says, the assumption that women are innately sexually oriented toward men or that the lesbian choice is simply an acting out of bitterness toward men are widely current in literature and in the social sciences. And she says she's concerned with two other matters as well. One is how and why women's choice of women as passionate comrades, life partners, co-workers, lovers community has been crushed, invalidated, and forced into hiding in disguise. And the second is the virtual or total neglect of lesbian experience in a wide range of writings, including feminist scholarship. Rich writes, any theory or cultural political creation that treats lesbian existence as a marginal or less quote-unquote natural phenomenon, or this idea of merely being sexual preference, or is the mirror image of either heterosexuality or male homosexual relations is profoundly weakened, whatever other contributions this um, theory offers. So Adrian Rich begins this by discussing four books that all present themselves as feminist and that all take as a basic assumption that the social relations between the sexes is extremely problematic, if not uh, har- very harmful for women and th- these books seek paths towards change and rich writes that each one of these books would have been much stronger if the author had had talked about lesbian experience as a as a reality as a source of knowledge and power that's available to women or that had talked about the institution of heterosexuality itself as a beachhead and i had i had to google this so a beachhead is a defended position on the beach from which uh, attacks can be launched. So if you think of what she's saying about the institution of heterosexuality is this defended position from which attacks can be launched of male dominance. So she says heterosexuality itself is the beachhead of male dominance. And she writes, in none of these books is compulsory heterosexuality even examined as an institution which powerfully affects mothering, sex roles, relationships, and societal, societal prescriptions. And neither is the idea of preference, in quotes, or innate orientation, in quotes, even indirectly questioned. So the first book, 
is For Her Own Good, 150 Years of Experts Advice to Women by Barbara Einrich and Diedrich English. And the thesis of this book is that um, advice given to American women by male health professionals, particularly in the areas of marital sex, maternity, and childcare, echoes the dictates of the economic marketplace and the role that capitalism has needed women to play in the production, in production or reproduction. And Rich writes that she was waiting for the basic prescription against lesbianism to be examined, but it never was, even though, Rich writes, there's lots of documentation of the torture that lesbians experienced at the hand of medical professionals in the 19th and 20th century. The second book is Toward a New Psychology of Women by Jean Baker Miller. And Adrian Rich writes, it's written as if lesbians don't exist at all, even as marginal beings. The third book is The Mermaid and the Minotaur, Sexual Arrangements and the Human Malaise by Dorothy Dinnerstein. And um, Adrian Rich has a lot to say about this book. So in this book, Dinnerstein makes an impassioned argument for the sharing of parenting between women and men and for an end to what she perceives as the male-female symbiosis of gender arrangements, which she feels are leading the species further and further into violence and self-extinction. And Rich writes that she finds utterly ahistorical, so not taking in um, a historical reality, Dinnerstein's view, what a great name, by the way, right? Dinnerstein, Lunchstein, no. Um, Dinnerstein's view of the relations between women and men as a, quote, collaboration to keep history mad. And Rich says what Dinnerstein means by a collaboration to keep history mad is um, that it perpetuates social relations which are hostile, exploitative, and destructive to life itself. And Dinnerstein Rich writes, sees women and men as equal partners in the making of this of these sexual arrangements that keep history mad. Seemingly unaware, Rich points out, of the repeated struggles of women to resist oppression, their own and that of others, and to change our conditions. Dinnerstein ignores specifically the history of women who, as witches, femmes seules, so single women, Marriage resistors, spinsters, autonomous widows, and or lesbians have managed on varying levels not to collaborate in these sexual uh, relationships. The fact is, Rich writes, women in every culture throughout history have undertaken the task of independent, non-heterosexual, women-connected existence to the extent made possible by their context often in the belief that they were the only ones to have ever done so. And I just want to say, keep an eye out in this article for these little phrases like this, the independent, non-heterosexual, women-connected existence, because Adrian Rich has a really interesting definition of lesbian continuum that uh, is going is to be more about this, about deep um, female-female connections. So Rich writes that women had undertaken to resist marriage 
even though attacks against unmarried women have ranged from uh, mockery to deliberate gynocide, which is the killing of women and girls, including the burning and torturing of millions of widows and spinsters during the witch persecutions of the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries in Europe. And, I mean, I think it's important to uh, be humble as human beings, considering our our history of just huge mistakes like um, the witch trials. I mean, that it's just so absurd to think about how many people we put to death for being wizards. Isn't that, it's just like, what the heck, human beings? The fourth and last book is The Reproduction of Mothering by Nancy Chidoro. Where, which argues that women and women only are responsible for childcare in the sexual division of labor. And this has led to an entire social organization of gender inequality. And in this book, Chidoro argues that men as well as women must become primary carers for children if that inequality is to change. And that reminds me of an interaction I had one time with a man who had seen um, a documentary on men's rights and one of the arguments um, show up allegedly showing how hard men had it in the world um, was custody battles and the number of custody battles that men lost. Um, that most of the time women got custody of their of the children over men, and this was supposed to be an example of um, how how anti male our society is. But of course, this is not an example of anti-maleness in our society. This is, this is about women being primary caregivers, which is about sexism once again. So, you know, when you watch things, um, just, you know, have your own thoughts about things and double check things against what you know. Okay, so we're talking about the Nancy Chidoro book. So Chidoro says that from a psychoanalytical analytic perspective, she argues that mothering by women affects the psychological development of girl and boy children. And she says she offers documentation that men are, quote, emotionally secondary in women's lives. So because women have women as mothers, Chidoro argues, the mother remains a primary internal object to the girl. So there's this female, female relationship that's central making heterosexual relationships a, a second secondary relationship for the girl whereas for the boy it recreates this exclusive primary relationship that he had with his mother so Chidora argues that women have learned to deny the limitation of masculine lovers because I guess masculine lovers can't be like this primary relationship that they had with their mothers for both psychological and practical reasons. And I, I mean, I just want to flag that uh, it's not obvious to me that what's happening in our romantic relations is a recreation of the relationships we, ha we had with our parents, or in this case, because women are primary caregivers with our mothers. I think that's uh, really oversimplified and something that we can wonder about and be suspicious of. But uh, what Rich wants to say is that Chidoro's account barely glances at the constraints and sanctions which 
historically have enforced and ensured the coupling of women with men and obstructed or penalized our coupling or allying or, or allying in independent groups with other women. She dismisses lesbian existence with the comment, lesbian relationships do tend to recreate mother-daughter emotions and connections, but most women are heterosexual. And again, I mean, uh, it's, it's not my experience it's not my experience that my relationship with my partner recreates my mother-daughter relationship. And I think that's something we should, that we should think about, that we got to think about for ourselves. Chidora argues that women want children because, because their heterosexual relationships lack richness and intensity. And this is something that I um, just want to say I love about philosophy because sometimes you read philosophy and, uh, you can see that the person writing thinks they're describing the world, but they're actually revealing something about them, about themselves. Uh, so it's I think maybe Chidora wanted children because her heterosexual relationship was lacking richness and intensity. So Rich writes, Chidoro, like Dinnerstein, is stuck trying to reform a man-made institution, compulsory heterosexuality, as if despite profound emotional impulses and complementarities drawing women toward women, there is a mystical, biological, heterosexual inclination, a, quote, preference or, quote, choice, which draws women toward men. Moreover, Rich writes, it's understood that this heterosexual preference doesn't need to be explained. It's only lesbian sexuality which is seen as requiring an explanation. This assumption of female heterosexuality, which I just want to point out also, seems to involve a, a presumption of male heterosexuality as well. So Rich writes, this seems to me in itself remarkable. What an enormous assumption to have glided so silently into the foundations of our thought. I am suggesting, Rich writes, that heterosexuality, like motherhood, needs to be recognized and studied as a political institution. And that's the end of part one, and we'll pick up part two in part two of our lecture. Very fitting. See you then. Bye. Hello, and welcome to part two of our lecture on Adrian Rich's article, Compulsory Heterosexuality. We are at part two in the reading. So Rich writes, if women are the earliest sources of emotional caring and physical nurture for both female and male children, it would seem logical from a feminist perspective, at least, to pose the following questions. Whether the search for love and tenderness in both sexes doesn't originally lead toward women. Why, in fact, would women ever redirect that search? And why species survival or the means of um, getting pregnant and reproducing, why those things, and then emotional and erotic relationships should ever become so rigidly identified with each other, which I think is a really cool point because you, you see evolutionary arguments for heterosexuality. Um, but Rich is saying, okay, look, yes, uh, heterosexuality is... Um, important for for reproduction, although less so now, right? Well, I mean, we still need sperm and stuff, but you don't need a heterosexual relationship. But 
but even so why does species survival need to be why does it need to be so rigidly connected to emotional relationships right it's really easy to imagine a world in which let's say everyone's queer but men and women just have sex every now every now and then for, to have kids and then go back to their queer relationships i mean there's just lots of worlds we can imagine where we don't where heterosexuality is not um or or where reproduction is not so closely tied to emotional relationships and why such violent strictures should be found necessary to enforce women's total emotional erotic loyalty and subservience to men and um later adrian rich has a great line about look if we need if we need so much structure to to force this to force heterosexuality then it must be holding back this like huge tide of energy anyway i'll point it out when we get there i love the sentence and um adrian rich says i do not myself assume that mothering by women is a is a quote sufficient cause of lesbian existence and to that i just want to say duh i mean of course that's um that that's an absurd claim <laughs> Um, so Rich says in her essay, The Origin of the Family, Kathleen Goh lists eight characteristics of male power in archaic and contemporary societies, which Rich uses as a framework. So the eight characteristics are to deny women their sexuality, to force male sexuality upon them to command or exploit their labor to control their produce which is something we talked about in a lecture on epistemology to control or rob them of their children to confine them physically and prevent their movement six to use them as objects in male transactions and seven to cramp their creativeness and eight to withhold from them large areas of the society's knowledge and cultural attainments. And Rich goes through each one of these in more detail, but I won't do that here. So Rich writes, looking at this schema by which male power is manifested and maintained, what surely impresses itself is the fact that we are confronting not a simple maintenance of inequality and property possession, but a pervasive cluster of forces ranging from physical brutality to control of consciousness, here's the line, which suggests that an enormous potential counterforce is having to be restrained, which is, I think, a beautiful line. And I just want to point out this, um, this phrase about control of consciousness, because we've seen in our epistemology literature also about uh, this raising of consciousness, this coming to be aware of things. And I think that's, that's really what, you know, what for me, feminist philosophy more generally is about is, um, you know, Rich talks later about what's scary about compulsory heterosexuality is, is the lack of choice. It's not about heterosexual relationships being bad and homosexual relationships being good. It's about not having choice in our in our own sexuality in our own sexual
being. And, you know, the things we've been looking at is also about this. Um, what kind of woman do you want to be if you want to be a woman? What kind of man do you want to be if you want to be a man? What kind of being do you want to be if you want to be none of those things? But this choice, you know, not having what being a woman is just forced upon you or chosen for you. But you have to learn, um, you have to first see the way, you have to first see that things are being chosen for you because it feel I mean that's the wild thing about the way these systems are internalized is makes it seem like it's my choice it makes it seem like seem like I'm choosing long hair I'm choosing to shave my legs or my armpits um and it's not about it's not about then feeling like you have you're forced to do the other thing if you feel forced to have short hair and forced to have uh, to shave your to not shave your legs and armpits say because that's the like that's the anti-oppressive thing to do there's no choice in that either so anyway control of consciousness sorry I had I went on a little rant okay so Rich says each one of these ways of p power control that she's listed adds to the cluster of forces within which women have been convinced that marriage and sexual orientation toward men are inevitable, even if unsatisfying or oppressive. And the erasure of lesbian existence, except as exotic or perverse in art, literature, film, and the idealization of heterosexual romance and marriage is one example of this control of consciousness. And then we have um, some discussion of clitoridectomy, which has been uh, assailed by feminists as a form of woman torture. And Kathleen Berry has pointed out that it's not, this is not simply a way of turning the young girl into a marriageable woman through brutal surgery, but it also intends that women in the intimate proximity of polygynous marriage with more than one wives will for not form sexual relations with each other and um i so i read in undergrad i read a really interesting article about clitoridectomy where um some doctors i think in seattle started to do it started tried to do it in a safe way that maintained the kind of ritual cultural aspect of it because they were seeing young girls who had had it done at home and then it had become infected or things had or way too much had been removed so these doctors in seattle started offering it to the the community that was doing it to their daughters and saying hey why don't we do it at the hospital we can do it safely we can just do um, a little nick on the clitoris so the whole thing isn't removed and things like this but there was such a backlash from the commute from the um, wider community that they had to stop these procedures so i just wanted to complicate this um, discussion of clitoridectomy a little bit and i also just want to raise the question uh why why don't we ask the same question about male circumcision and just 
that the conversation in our cultural bit about male circumcision, which is also a, a surgery on a baby where no consent is involved and is at least complicated in the way that um, clitoridectomies are, I think, complicated. Okay, so uh, then Rich goes on to talk about the function of, of pornography as an influence on consciousness. And she writes that pornography, in pornography, women are a sexual commodity devoid of emotional context to be consumed by males. She writes, the most harmful message relayed by pornography is that woman is, women are natural sexual prey to men and love it. That sexual, sexuality and violence go together. That for women, sex is essentially abuse. Rich writes, along with this message comes another. The inf that enforced submission and the use of cruelty, if, pl if played out in a heterosexual pairing, is sexually, quote, normal, while sexuality or sensuality between women, including mutual eroticism and respect, is, is odd and not normal and even sick. Rich writes, Pornography doesn't simply create a climate in which sex and violence become interchangeable, but it widens the range of behavior that's considered acceptable from men in heterosexual intercourse behavior, which strips women of their autonomy, dignity, and sexual potential, including the potential of loving and being loved by women. And, you know, we live in a culture right now that is hyper... That where there's a lot of sexual images, there's a lot of access to pornography, and I, I think it's right to talk about the um, the impact of that pornography. I mean, most of it, if you're not watching like specifically kind of feminist pornography, and I, I don't think pornography is inherently bad, but I think at best, um, pornography is super male-centric. If there's if there's not like overt violence against women, it's really it's from the male point of view. It's about male orgasm, and I think when you combine that with a culture that's really that's not talking about sex very much, uh, we have a problem. We have a huge problem. Okay, so Rich goes on to say. In Sexual Harassment of Working Women, A Case of Sex Discrimination, Catherine A. McKinnon asks, Why do we see the same groups of people occupying low-status, low-paying positions, such as women, if w employers could pay women less and then save money, which seems to be the point of capitalism, is to make as much money as possible, even at, even to the point of destroying the planet and going extinct but at least our at least our coffers will be full <laughs> what a treat so uh mckinnon cites wealth of material of documentation that women are not only segregated in low-paying service jobs but that the sexualization of the of women is part of the job so if anyone has if anyone has worked a service industry job like being a waitress then uh, I, I'm sure you have first-hand experience of this. So in these uh, low-paying service jobs, two forces of American society converge. First, 
men's control over women's sexuality. So they're um, sexualized in the workplace because men control women's sexuality. And the cap and capital's control over the employees' work work lives. So economically disadvantaged women, whether waitresses or professors, endure sexual harassment to keep their jobs and learn to behave in a complacent and ingratiating heterosexual manner because they discover this is their true qualification for employment, whatever the job description. So if anyone has watched Mad, uh, Mad Men, right, I think that's a great example of this where uh, secretaries are seen as something for the businessmen or the busyness men to uh, to look at it's just like this shiny thing for them to have in the in the office so this raises a specific difference between the experience of lesbians and homosexual men a lesbian who has to be closeted on her job because of uh, heterosexism or homophobia is not simply forced into denying the truth of her outside the job relationships or of hiding her private life, with homo which homosexual men also have to do, but her job depends on her pretending to be not merely heterosexual, but a heterosexual woman in terms of dressing and playing the feminine deferential role required of real women, which includes being sexualized at work. The fact is that the workplace, among other social institutions, is a place where women have learned to accept male violation of our psychic and physical boundaries as the price of survival, where women have been educated no less than by romantic literature or by pornography to ex perceive ourselves and experience ourselves as sexual prey. A woman seeking to escape such casual violations along with economic disadvantage may well turn to marriage as a form of hope for protection, while bringing into marriage neither social nor economic power. So one thing Beauvoir talked about in The Second Sex is the importance of equality for good um, moral or ethical relationships between men and women. But I think this is a really good point that Rich makes about women not being able to bring social or economic power into their relationships when there's social and economic uh, inequality built into us. Given the nature and extent of heterosexual pressures, the daily eroticization of women's subordination, as McKinnon phrases it, Rich questions the more or less psychoanalytical perspective that the male need to control women's sexual sexuality results from some primal male quote fear of women well get over it then <laughs> but rich says that's not that's not what it is and it's not about men's fear of women's quote sexual insatiability what rich argues it is it seems more probable that men what men really fear is not that they will have women's sexual appetites forced on them or that women want to smother or devour them. Although that's a narrative too, right? About women smothering. Um, but Rich says, what men are afraid of is that women could be indifferent to them altogether. And, you know, that reminds me of this whole incel thing, which is about women, about men's, like, 
drastic overreaction, and that's an understatement, obviously, but of women's indifference to them and this sense of entitlement to women. Now Rich turns to Kathleen Barry in her book, Female Sexual Slavery, and Barry turns her floodlight on the pathology of sex colonization itself, the ideology of, quote, cultural sadism, represented by the vast industry of pornography and by the overall identification of women primarily as sexual beings whose responsibility is the sexual service of men. So here what comes to mind are things like Playboy, Playboy bunnies. I don't know if anyone watched the, there was a reality show about the Playboy bunnies. And it's, it's very odd. They, you know, he, Hef controlled their money he controlled where they went they had curfews they couldn't like be out past a certain time and they're adult these are adult women anyway the whole thing very bizarre also thinking about our culture of women who are celebrities because they're supermodels which i mean a supermodel is is basically famous because they're very good at being a sex object which is odd and also not you don't see that it's not you don't see this with men I I could name a lot of female uh, supermodels but I can't think of one male supermodel so Kathleen Berry delineates what she names a sexual domination perspective through whose lens purporting objectivity sexual abuse and terrorism and terrorism of women by men has been rendered almost invisible by treating it as natural and inevitable. From its point of view, the point of view of the sexual domination perspective, women are expendable as long as the sexual and emotional needs of the male can be satisfied. And if you think men are are good, which I think they are, then we have to wonder what what kind of messages are we giving them how what why are we raising so many men that are violent to women right what what messages are we sending them to create this this kind of world and actually next week we're going to read a bell hooks article about um creating loving men which will be really fun rich writes that the ideology of heterosexual romance beamed at young young people from childhood out of fairy tales, television, films, advertising, popular songs, wedding pageantry is a tool that's ready to be used. Early female indoctrination in, quote, love as an emotion may be largely a Western concept, but a more universal ideology that concerns the primacy and uncontrollability of the male sexual drive. This is one of the many insights offered by Barry's work. And this, I think, is uh, one of the myths that creates men who do bad things when men are men can be so wonderful just like white people can be so wonderful if they weren't racist weren't created to be racist dicks so rich writes there's this mystique or this myth of the overpowering all-conquering male sex drive sex drive the penis with a life of its own which is rooted in the male sex, the law of the male sex right to women, this um, male entitlement to women's bodies. 
the adolescent male sex drive, which as both young women and men with both young women and men are taught once triggered, can't take responsibility for itself or take no for an answer becomes according to Barry, the norm and rationale for adult male sexual behavior. So we're creating this condition of arrested sexual development for men. And, per- and I, I think that's also about an arrested personal development, which is, of course, not to say that men can't go beyond these um, this arrested development, just like white people can go beyond the, uh, the way racism arrests their development as ethical human beings as human beings as well we can go beyond these but as a culture we're not creating we're not um, helping to create fully developed human beings with our myths and stories if when we're doing these things so rich writes the effect of male identification and male identification is the act whereby women place men above women including themselves in credibility, status, and importance, regardless of the comparative quality of the women in the situation, and where interaction with women is seen as a lesser form of relation on every level. And this is something that we talked about in Bell Hooks. And I bet lots of us have experience of the overvaluation of our heterosexual romantic relationships. So if you've ever had an older relative ask you, do you have anyone special in your life? They're not talking they're not asking you if you have loving friends or if you have a loving relationship with your siblings or family members. They're talking about romantic they want to know about your romantic relationships. And um and probably I mean unless you have a really cool grandma, they probably are asking about an opposite a heterosexual relationship. Rich writes, whatever the origins of this, when we look hard and clearly at the extent and elaboration of measures designed to keep women within a male sexual purlieu, so control, it becomes an an inescapable question whether the issue we have to address as feminists is not simply gender inequality or or the domination of culture by males or merely taboos against homosexuality, but the enforcement of heterosexuality for women as a means of assuring male right of physical, economical, and emotional access. And one of the many means of enforcement of this is, of course, the rendering invisible of the lesbian uh, possibility. So Rich writes that feminist research and theory that contributes to the lesbian invisibility or marginality is actually working against the liberation and empowerment of women as a group. The assumption that most women are innately heterosexual stands as a theoretical and political stumbling block for many women. It remains a tenable assumption, partly because lesbian existence has been written out of history or cataloged under disease, partly because it has been treated as exceptional rather than intrinsic and innate and natural and normal, partly because to acknowledge that for women... Heterosexuality may not be a, quote, preference at all, but something that has been imposed, managed, organized, propagandized, and maintained by force is an immense step to take if you consider yourself freely and innately heterosexual. 
but the failure to examine heterosexuality as an institution is like failing to admit that the economic system called capitalism or the caste system of racism is maintained by a variety of forces, including both physical violence and false consciousness. Now we get to part three, where Rich defines two important terms, lesbian existence and lesbian continuum. Lesbian existence uh, is, suggests both the fact of historical presence of lesbians and the continuing creation of the meaning of lesbian existence. Lesbian continuum includes a range of women-identified experience, not simply the fact that a woman has had or consciously desires genital sexual experience with another woman, but also for rich les the lesbian continuum includes includes many forms of of bonding and relationships between and among women including the sharing of our inner lives the bonding against male tyranny the giving and receiving of practical and political support so for rich the lesbian the lesbian continuum includes just deep all kinds of deep relationships of women between women because these relationships are um, go against this compulsory heterosexuality and valuing these relationships with women um, go, goes against this compulsory heterosexuality so valuing women is a radical act and you know this is why I wanted to talk about the myth at the beginning that men and women can't be friends because I think male and female friendship uh, I don't know if Rich would agree with me on this, but I think male and female friendships can also be radical acts against compulsory heterosexuality to have deep, meaningful, but platonic relationships between men and women. I think that's radical and awesome. And um, yeah, one of my best friends is a, a boy named Stuart. And we've been, well, he's, a, he's an adult. That'd be weird if he was a boy. But we've been friends since grade one. And it hasn't always been easy, in part because of this compulsory heterosexuality, right? You're a threat to relationships. He's a threat, can be seen as a threat to my relationships. But I wanted to highlight uh, male and female friendships as also being, I think, a radical act against compulsory, um, page, uh, compulsory heterosexuality. Rich writes that lesbian existence comprises both the breaking of a taboo and the rejection of a compulsory way of life. It has, of course, included negative things like self-hatred, and she writes it's important not to romanticize what it means to love and act, act against the grain under heavy penalties. Lesbian existence has been lived without access to any knowledge of a tradition, a continuity, a social un underpinning. Lesbians have historically been deprived of a political existence through inclusion as female versions of male homosexuality. And Rich writes that part of the history of lesbian existence is obviously to be found where lesbians, because they were lacking a coherent female community, have shared a kind of social life and common cause with homosexual men. But this also has to be seen against differences women's lack of economic and cultural privilege relative to men, and other things. Rich writes that the term lesbian has been held to limiting clinical associations in its patriarchal definition, and female friendships and comradeship has been set apart from lesbianism and the erotic. 
which also limits the erotic it itself. But we need to deepen and broaden the range of what we define as lesbian experience, Rich writes. As we delineate a lesbian continuum, we begin to discover the erotic in female terms, and we'll read Audre Lorde's article on the erotic in two weeks, where Audre Lorde writes that the sharing of joy, whether physical, emotional, or psychic, and the sharing of work is part of the erotic. The sharing this empowering joy makes us less willing to accept powerlessness or those other supplied states of being which are not native to me, such as resignation, despair, self-effacement, depression, and self-denial, Lord writes. And I want to pause and say, um, what do you think about this idea that joy is native but depression isn't? Um, yeah, I think that's worth questioning. So if, and we can think about that more with when we read the Lord paper. So if we consider the possibility that all women exist on a lesbian continuum, we can see ourselves as moving in and out of this continuum, whether we identify as lesbian or not. If we think of heterosexuality as the, quote, natural emotion and sensual inclination for women, lives such as Emily Dickinson and Nora Neely Hurston are seen as deviant, as pathological, or as emotionally and sensually deprived. Or in more recent and permissive jargon, they are banalized as, quote, lifestyles. And the work of such women is undervalued or seen as the bitter fruit of penis envy or the, sublima or the sublimation of repressed eroticism or the meaningless rant of a man-hater. But when we turn the lens of vision and consider the degree to which and the methods whereby heterosexual, quote, preference has actually been imposed on women, not only can we understand differently the meaning of individual lives and work, but we can begin to recognize a central fact of women's history, that women have always resisted male tyranny. Dun, 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 dun. That's, that's the sound that should come after that line. Rich goes on to discuss the double, double life of women, which is the women's apparent acquiescence to an institution founded on male interest and prerogative. This will come back. And this double life, she says, is characteristic of female experience in motherhood and in many kinds of heterosexual behavior, including rituals of courtship. And she goes on to, to discuss two novels, The Girl by Maridel Lesseurs and Toni Morrison's Sula, but I'm going to skip past this because this uh, lecture is running a little long. Such a good article. Okay, so we're on to part four. Rich writes, women identification, which um, I am understanding here as essentially valuing women, right? So we talked about male identification was women seeing men as better than women. So I think, I don't think we don't need to flip women identification and say it's about women seeing women as better than men, but I think we can just think about women identification as being uh, women valuing women. Rich writes, women identification is a source of energy, a potential springhead of female power, violently curtailed and wasted under the institution of heterosexuality. The denial of reality and visibility to women's passion for women, women's choice of women as allies, life companions, and community, the forcing of such relationships into dissimulation, which means hiding under false appearances, 
and their disintegration under intense pressure have meant an incalculable loss to the power of all women to change the social relations of the sexes, to liberate ourselves and each other. One example of hiding the relationships of women that's hiding under false appearances is the that new romantic comedy with Kristen Stewart called Happiest Season that just came out where two queer women who are pretending they're roommates for their family. I mean, that's just always the way queer rom-coms go. And uh, I mean, it's good they're making them, but couldn't it just be about something else? Like, couldn't it be not about hiding their relationship? You never see that in heterosexual. There's no heterosexual rom-com where it's like, Oh, Jack and Jill are only roommates. Wink, wink. You know, that's not, that's not a thing. Why? Because of compulsory heterosexuality. So this lie of compulsory heterosexuality, Rich writes, is many layered. In Western tradition, one layer, the romantic, asserts that women are inevitably, even if rashly and tragically, drawn to men. That this is a organic imperative or a natural, normal command. And here we have, this is an example of what Tuana was talking about, about the discipline of normalization, the way normal controls our behavior, makes some behaviors good and some behaviors bad. In the tradition of the social sciences, it asserts that primary love between the, sec between the sexes is, nor quote, normal, that women need men as social economic protectors for the fulfillment of their adult sexuality. Think Freud and that whole immature clitoral orgasm and mature vaginal orgasm which um, you need dicks of some kind for a vaginal orgasm even if it's a vibrator this idea that the heterosexual family is the basic social unit that women who do not attach to their primary intense relationship to men must be in functional terms condemned to an even more devastating outsiderhood than their outsiderhood as women. And you can think about all of these, like the spinster or the cat lady, which is about single women, these, these tropes, these nasty tropes about single women. And then think about the tropes that we have for single men, which is like bachelor and playboy and like the cool guy with a man cave in his apartment, which is like, are, you don't evolve past caves, rich quotes uh, Lorraine Bethel, a black lesbian feminist critic who writes for a black woman already twice an outsider to choose to assume still an another hated identity is problematic. Even though the lesbian continuum, which is, you know, female relationships, have been a lifeline for women, including for black women. Another layer of this lie is this frequently encountered implication that women turn to women out of a hatred for men lesbian existence is represented as the mere refuge from male abuses rather than an electric empowering charge between women on their own because they delight in each other's company and are attracted to each other's minds and characters which proceeds from a recognition of each other's strengths much like bell hook said rich writes we can say that there is a nascent or the beginnings of a feminist political content in the act of choosing a woman lover or life partner in the face of institu institutionalized heterosexuality. But for lesbian existence to realize, to realize this political content in an ultimately liberating form, the erotic choice much, must deepen and expand 
into conscious women identification, which is conscious um, valuing of women by women. Adrian Rich writes that historians and we need to ask at every point how heterosexuality as institution has been organized and maintained by various things. And we might ask, okay, well, given all this, should we condemn all heterosexual relationships, including those that are least oppressive? And Adrian says, this is just the wrong question. Let's, we've been stalled by this false dichotomy, good versus bad things. And this has prevented us from seeing the institution as a whole. And what is absent, she says, that's crucial is the absence of choice. It will require a courageous grasp of the politics and economics as well as of cultural propaganda of heterosexuality to carry us beyond individual cases or diversified group situations into the complex kind of overview needed to undo the power men everywhere wield over women. So we'll end there and I'm sorry that this uh, lecture went so long. And um, I also wanna say it for an extra point, uh, for up to an extra 1%, if you post a comment on our chat class form about this lecture, about your thoughts on the, sorry, on, not on the lecture, on the article, your thoughts about the article, um, um, you can do that and get up to 1%. And, you know, I also want to say to everyone, to men and women, to, you know, this article is really about celebrating your relationships with women. So maybe text your mom or text a friend or your sisters or your aunts and um, appreciate them because women are awesome and so are men. But right now we're talking about women and I, and I mean to include all women, including women who are trans. So celebrate them all. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye.